these verses from verse 13 to 16, you are the salt of the earth, and so on. I want to imagine if uh, you had been one of that group of disciples. And remember we said last time that uh, Jesus had parted from the, the general crowd that were following him, and it was those that were uh, committed or on their way to uh, commitment of faith that were there around him on the mountain. So it may not have been the 12, it may have been a, a larger number than that. Uh, but imagine the impact it would have made if you had been there to hear Jesus say that you were the only hope uh, that the world had uh, if it was not to go completely to the dogs, if it was not to go off and decay. That you were the only hope if the world was not to lapse back into primordial darkness. You were there to be salt and to be light. You'd feel under a bit of pressure, I think. A small group of people, maybe 20, two dozen people uh, around Jesus. And yet that's pretty much what Jesus is saying to uh, the disciples and to those, including us, who follow them. It's a tall order. And we haven't really got Jesus' message unless we are ourselves feeling really uncomfortable and, in a sense, overwhelmed by the enormity of what Jesus is saying. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It certainly rules out from the outset any possibility that Christianity can be a private affair. You know, my little deal with God. You know, what I believe is my own business and nobody needs to know about it. Uh, the, the New Testament knows nothing uh, about that privatised kind of religion. For one thing, people uh, who are those described in the Beatitudes get noticed. Such is the world that if uh, people are poor in spirit, if they're seen to mourn over their sin meek in how they estimate themselves, if they show mercy, passionate about pleasing God, uh, have total integrity, leave a trail of peace in their wake. Such people stand out. They get noticed. And sometimes they're persecuted. But other times they are attractive and they bring a positive response from the people around them. And it's through that positive influence that the people of God have, that the kingdom of God, which is the rule of Jesus in the world, extends. By way of background, it's interesting uh, to, to know that salt and light borrow from the idea of Israel, the nation's original uh, mission. The, the rabbis uh, would speak about Israel being a kind of uh, preservative uh, for the world. Uh, they were to purify the nations through the, the distinctive holiness that Israel would, would have. And they were to be a light. Isaiah spoke about Israel having a calling to be a light to the nations. But Israel, by and large, rejected that call to be an international faith community. Uh, you know the, the book of Jonah, where God sends his prophet to go to Nineveh and to call him to repentance. And Jonah uh, goes eventually, but he goes kicking and screaming, dragging his heels every step of the way. He's the reluctant prophet. 
And Israel eventually abandoned this project to be a light to the nations. And so now uh, it is the new Israel, it's the church of God that must be God's light to a dark world. The church is Jesus' plan A for the world. And there is no plan B. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let's look uh, at both of these uh, pictures in turn. Salt first and then light. Uh, salt, uh, in Jesus' day, it's great function. We wouldn't be speaking to children so much about it being uh, something which was flavoursome as so much as it was a preservative. That was what it was primarily used for. Uh, there were no deep freezes, uh, no canning factories, and people would rub salt into meat or fish and that would create on the surface of the, the flesh uh, a, a, an environment that was hostile to the, the organisms that attack uh, fresh meat or fresh fish. And seemingly how that happens is that the, the salt draws out moisture from the, the meat or the, the fish. So it's, it has a kind of desiccating effect and the, the surface of the meat uh, is then too dry for, for the mold or the bacteria that would otherwise attack it and break it down. So salt has been used for centuries as a preservative. And in our day, because of all of these different uh, uh, things, we don't need uh, salt too much. But occasionally you, you see it put into use. There's a very uh, ancient tradition on the Isle of Lewis and the northwest of uh, parties leaving, the parties of, of men going out in a boat to the Isle of Sulaskir near North Rona. And they go out uh, in order, order to harvest what is regarded incredibly as a delicacy, which is the young gannet. Um, I've tasted it once, and it, I can guarantee you it tastes like rubber boots. It's really awful stuff, but it's prized in some quarters. And the men will go out there, and they uh, catch these gannets from the cliffs, and then they're, they're uh, sent uh, up the cliff, and they make a, a kind of cairn, a pile of these uh, dead gangs which have been plucked, defeathered, and they're rubbed in salt. They take a whole lot of salt over with them, and the salt preserves them for all the time they're out there, and these uh, gannets or guga can be exported all around the world for those who have a taste for the incredible. Uh, the salt preserves them. And when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, uh, he is presupposing something. There's something lying behind his statement. And that is that the world is going off and will rot without the influence of his people. So the world is not getting better and better. It's not in a process of moral evolution to perfection. It's the other way. It has a downward tendency. Now, at many times in history, people have had this almost naively optimistic view of how the world was going. And at the beginning of the 20th century, there was, uh, especially in liberal uh, theology schools, there was this view that uh, everything was improving, you know, uh, encouraged by geographical discovery, scientific inventions. Everybody thought that things were getting better and better all the time. And then, of course, we had the First World War. And that completely shattered the idea that mankind 
is getting better all the time. But many of our politicians and many of, of uh, the, the social engineers of our day still think that humanity has got the potential to improve all the time on its own. And so the answer to some of our social ills, teenage pregnancy, uh, drug abuse, vandalism, is simply better education. So the idea is that if you tell people uh, the outcomes of doing something right as against doing something wrong, they will choose the, the right with the better outcome. Wrong. It doesn't happen like that. Uh, people uh, have got an issue which is not on the surface, but it's deeply internal. It's the problem of the human heart. And it's essentially our self-centeredness. Our default mode, if you like, a resting position as human beings is me first. Me first. Uh, children are straightforward enough to actually express that, you know, and, and you hear them say that, me first, me first. And as adults, we become more sophisticated and we don't say that, but we think that and we behave that way. We want to put ourselves first before others all the time. And repentance is when we come to God and we own up to God that we've been living this way. We've been living in a me first way. And I have been the ruler of my own life. I've been living in independence of God. And when I'm repenting, I'm not just saying to God that I've, I've done wrong things. You know, I've done this, that, and the next thing which have been wrong. I'm saying that my whole life is categorized by this me first outlook. Everything I've done, even my best deeds have had a self-interest involved in them. My whole life is self-absorption, self-interest, me first. Uh, when I do good, I'm drawing attention to myself or trying to control people or pushing my agenda in different ways. And that's the way that the world is, and that's the way that relationships eventually break down, blow up, fall apart, erode. One person gets offended because they've been unfairly treated, Friendships get frayed by people pushing their own interests. And our calling as Christians is to be light, or sorry, to be salt in the sense that we, we arrest the decay. We slow down the decay. How does that happen in all the relationships around us? Well, because Christians are called to be radically different. People who are poor in spirit, conscious of their sin, who are meek, and who put people first other than themselves and provide a counterculture for society. We sometimes despair of the fact that there are so few Christians. We get statistics which show ever-declining proportion of the population are, are Christians. But we shouldn't give in to false despair or the devil's lie that we can have no influence because just assault has a disproportionate influence, so even a small number of Christians in a community can have a real impact. Presence of one or two people who are not so sensitive to their own turf that they're always calling people out. The presence of people who are not overbearing or who are not irritable. That changes the atmosphere 
in a workplace, in a classroom, in an office, wherever we are. And by challenging that me-first attitude by a different lifestyle, the atmosphere is sweetened. The breakdown in relationships is slowed down, arrested. Forgiveness is modelled. Patience is displayed. Relationships are nurtured. And then other things uh, can take place by the presence of even a few Christians. The, the practice by even the few of a Sabbath rest on the Sunday is actually far more persuasive than many uh, political uh, movements or, or lobbying of parliament. When we were looking at the, the Beatitudes, we saw that Christian living, distinctive Christian living, will always uh, create a reaction. Either it will be a, a negative or a positive. It will be a, a push or, or a drawing uh, to the gospel. And it's the same with being salt in the world. Uh, it can actually bring on negativity or it can bring attraction. Think, for example, of the way that uh, salt can be used. I suppose it would be in pretty extreme situations you would do this, but if you had a wound, say you were out in the desert or something like that, and you had a wound in danger of going septic, you may rub salt in the wound. Now, <laughs> the consequences are proverbial. You know, it's, it's a real sting that you get when you do that, but actually the salt would prevent the kind of bugs that attack fish and chicken uh, from attacking your own flesh. It would preserve you. But, of course, there's a sting. And sometimes people resent the challenge of a Christian lifestyle and resort to unfair persecution. But, on the other hand, uh, as we were saying to the children, one function of salt is to bring out flavour. And so, when Christians live as Christians should, they are people with a zest for the creation that God has given us. Uh, they live uh, with a full enjoyment of their father's gifts that has a persuasiveness and attractiveness in the world uh, where there's a, a, a weary cynicism about everything. God's people are to bring out uh, the flavor of life. They're to show uh, a different outlook. How do we act as salt? What's important? Well, implicit is the fact that the salt must be in contact with the world. Uh, if salt is not uh, rubbed onto the meat, then it won't act as a preservative if there's no contact. There's no point in, in Christians just mixing with their own kind. You know, if, if, if the church simply becomes a, a little social club where everybody comes uh, every Christian comes to do all of their, their socialising and, and to, to find their you know, outlet for their spare hours, then nobody is in contact with the, the world that needs the salt. And therefore, Christians need to be uh, out in the community, in the bloodstream of the community, as it were. But Jesus' point here is actually uh, not that one. Jesus' point is that salt must be different. Salt must be distinctive. And there is a tension, you see, because Jesus says that we're to be in the world but not of it. No point in being in the world if we're just the same as the world. Our point is to challenge the world by our distinctiveness. 
seems strange that salt could lose its saltiness. But uh, the salt that was used in Jesus' day was actually impure material. It was dug from the shores of the Dead Sea. It was stored in piles. And so in this, these heaps of mined salt, there were different impurities. And the salt could actually be washed out, robbing the so-called salt of its saltiness. And Jesus has prayed that uh, we as his people should be in the world, but so radically distinct in our lifestyle that we challenge the world and act as agents of change in the world. In Jesus' great prayer before he goes to the cross, he prays, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So as we open our lives up to the, the truth of the Bible, we are sanctified, we are set apart to be different whilst we are in the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And the light of the world. Again, there's an assumption lying behind what Jesus is saying is that the world is dark and light must come from the people of Christ. Uh, darkness is often used in, in the Bible, uh, at the, in the prophecies of the coming of Jesus. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So here's God's picture of, of the world in its moral decay. We are in darkness. And that's, that's a fearful thing, to be continually in darkness. We were thinking uh, last year about these uh, Thai youngsters uh, who got caught in a subterranean cave and they were underground for weeks. Imagine how that must have affected their morale, being in this gloomy atmosphere for that length of time. What a joy to emerge from that subterranean darkness into the outside world and its light. And Jesus speaks of himself as the light of the world, the great light that has come to people living in darkness. But people don't think of themselves as being in darkness. We certainly don't think of ourselves living in darkness in uh, British society in the 21st century. What's one of the, the, uh, the commonest cliches, phrases that people use? Well, they use the term, in this day and age. And it's shorthand for talking about our supposed enlightenment, our advanced state. We no longer do this or that in this day and age. Surely no one believes that anymore in this day and age. In other words, we've, we've advanced. We're, we're no longer uh, in the dark ages. We're in the light. And that's not God's verdict on our situation. And God's verdict on our situation is that we're still very much in the dark. We're in the darkest regards what goodness is. Morally, we're in confusion. Think of the fact, uh, for example, that so many things are taught formally to people which were once passed down informally through families. Relational skills, respect for others, marriage guidance, parenting skills, citizenship, right and wrong, uh, 
you know, as, as society has got older, these things are, are more and more lost and they're now taught formally in the schools or elsewhere. And people's moral judgments are all over the place. Uh, they are so faddish, so out of kilter. So people will protest uh, against uh, you know, the abuse of animal rights. But the very same people who get uh, heated over animal rights may be very militant against the rights of the unborn child. We're in the dark. Moral chaos reigns. And the light does two things. Uh, negatively, it exposes darkness. It shows up uh, this fact that we uh, need uh, to have direction. That's always the place to begin. People look at the world and they misdiagnose uh, what's wrong. And they blame the wrong things. They blame our education system or our schools or our housing. And only the Christian is going to speak out and is going to, to nail the fact that our problem is our relationship with God, or rather our lack of a relationship with God. Our problem is inner darkness, our need uh, for God's direction. And positively, that the light, Christians as light, uh, point people to Jesus, point to the light. Jesus uses the picture of a community set on a hill. Uh, Jesus' people are to reveal God so that uh, people around will glorify God. It's always the, the great objective in all that God does that he should be glorified. God reveals himself. He's revealed himself most fully through Jesus, his son. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And now he's revealing himself through the community that is the church. A community of people who acknowledge their deep need before God, who know what it is to receive God's deep mercy. Uh, who are learning more and more to put the other before their own needs, to forgive offences done to them, to acknowledge their own wrongs, to hold their possessions loosely, to refuse to use power, to manipulate others. And that glorifies God because God is a community of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, dwelling eternally, directed towards the other. And the church demonstrates that to a needy and watching world. Notice two things in connection with letting your light shine. First, uh, it's good deeds that are spoken of specifically as giving glory to God. That your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Uh, Peter speaks of the same thing. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Christians are to be rich in good deeds. Our faith is intensely practical. Christians are to be known as people who refuse to rob their employers by being lazy at work, who are the first to lend a hand to someone in difficulty, who genuinely seek the good of their community rather than their own personal ends. They are transparent in honesty, genuine in their concern. This is the, the purpose of our salvation. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy uh, in chapter 2, 14, 
He, Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. It's a lovely expression. Does it describe you this morning? Are you eager to do what is good? Praise God for some of the the significant people who have changed society because of their Christian faith. I mean, there, there are some giants that spring to mind. Think of uh, Wilberforce and Shaftesbury and, and Muller. Uh, Wilberforce uh, in the forefront of abolishing the slave trade. Uh, Shaftesbury improving factory conditions. Muller providing orphanages uh, for children. Uh, even uh, Shaftesbury's involvement uh, in the founding of the RSPCA. I think of our own day with John Kirby, founder of Christians Against Poverty, uh, providing opportunities for Christians to be light in the world. And secondly, we're not to hide our light. We're to be rich in in good deeds and we're not to hide our light. And if the warning uh, in relation to salt is that Christians are always in danger of losing their distinctiveness, here Jesus issues a warning that Christians are always at risk of retreating and retreating from the public sphere and making their faith something private. And that's absurd, Jesus says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. No one in their right mind takes a a light and then puts a bowl under it so that the light is obscured completely. It's nonsensical. You are intended to be seen and known as a Christian. The world out there is dark. It needs Christians to be there to dispel the darkness. If we have friends uh, who don't come to church and at the present time have no inclination to come to church, hold fast to those friends. Don't give up on them. Don't retreat uh, into uh, a ghetto. Be involved. Uh, Be a blessing to the community. Sometimes our communities uh, are so bereft of salt and light that there's a sense of collapsing into despair, drugs and drink wasting lives. And the answer is not criticizing, but the answer is, is, is loving and the answer is involving ourselves for Jesus' sake. And Jesus' analogies show that it only takes a few Christians in the community to have an influence for good. To be known as the people who love Jesus and the community who are zealous for doing good, who continually and unselfconsciously point others to God, that's what our calling is. You're not in some uh, witness protection scheme where your identity uh, is something that is to be well hidden. You are to be out there for Jesus Christ, known in the public sphere as a Christian and highly visible because of good deeds. That's Jesus' calling. As we close, we, we close acknowledging that we as Christians are people who are still struggling with this me first germ in our lives. That's true of me. And I know it will be true of you also. Only one person has ever lived 
who was completely turned outwards in love towards others. Jesus is meek and lowly. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is the great peacemaker. Jesus came to this earth as the light of the world. He brought flavor, the flavor of heaven, uh, into the real world. People were drawn to him, attracted to him, to his winsomeness. He also challenged the world. The light had come to challenge darkness. John writes, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And in the the climax of Jesus' mission, he hangs there on the cross of Calvary and darkness engulfs the land at noon. It seems that the light has died. And on the third day, our Saviour is raised in power and glory. Light steps forth from the grave. And he is alive forevermore. Our Saviour is alive. And he says to us this morning, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. May God bless to us his word.